Father in heaven, we thank you again, Lord, for the blessing to come together as a family to once again study your words of truth. We pray that you'll make your word plain to us, Lord, that we may understand what we read and know how to apply the beautiful lessons on faith that you are showing us at such a time as this. Speak to us now, we pray. Grant us your Holy Spirit. Forgive us, we pray, of our sins. And thank you for hearing our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so we left off with the first point in our lesson on faith. And I think we would do well to consider it once again. So let's go ahead and let's consider this point. We were looking at what faith was. We saw the, the story of the centurion. And when we looked at the story of the centurion, we saw that faith is fully trusting God's word to come to pass because he said it. And depending only on the word to do what God said it will do. This is faith. Now, the reason that this is important is because the most essential knowledge for us to gain is the knowledge of how to cultivate faith, how to exercise and grow in faith. This is the most essential knowledge. Now, we looked at Matthew 8. We saw some powerful lessons that came from it. But now I want us to look at a deeper layer. One thing we learn is we must become more acquainted with the word. As we become more acquainted with the word of God, then we better know how to depend on it and to believe it and to trust it in the various circumstances of our own lives. There's a deeper layer. The deeper layer, we're now going to look at Genesis chapter 12. So let's turn there. Genesis, and we're going to chapter 12. And I want you to see what Genesis 12 shows us here because this is also a very powerful lesson in dealing with faith. And this is what I would call a deeper layer. The first part is difficult for many of us, but nevertheless, it's quite possible. The more we know what God says, we can trust, know the Lord said that he will do this. Therefore, we trust it fully and we depend it's going to come to pass because God promised it will come to pass. That's pretty simple. But now we're looking at Genesis chapter 12. If you're there, just let me know by saying amen. The Bible says in Genesis 12, looking at verses 1 and 2, it says in Genesis 12, 1 and 2, now the Lord had said unto Abram, get thee out of thy country and from thy kindred and from thy father's house unto a land that I will show thee. And verse two is very important. He says, and I will make of thee a great nation and I will bless thee and make thy name great and thou shalt be a blessing. So what did God promise that he was going to make unto Abram? He was going to make a great nation. Okay, now let's get some specifications on that. Genesis 13. So now in Genesis 13, one chapter over, look at verse 16. In Genesis 13, in verse 16, we now see here that the Bible adds more into the picture. God promised Abram, I'm going to make a great nation. You shall be blessed, and you're also going to be a blessing. Now in Genesis 13, 16, it says, And I will make thy seed as the dust of the earth, so that if a man can number the dust of the earth, then shall thy seed also be numbered. God promised, I'm going to make a great nation. He says, I'm going to make a seed, and the seed is going to be like the dust of the earth. Basically innumerable. I mean, you just can't calculate it. That's how big it's going to be. Then, more specific, 
Genesis 21, verse 12. So watch again. Watch what God is doing. God is making it clear. I'm going to make a great nation. This great nation is going to come through thy seed, and that seed is going to ultimately multiply like the way you see little kernels in the dust of the earth. It's just something you can't calculate. It'll be that much. So now we're in Genesis 21. And in Genesis 21, notice what it says in verse 12. God gets more specific. In Genesis 21, verse 12, God says, And God said unto Abraham, Let it not be grievous in thy sight because of the lad and because of thine bondwoman. And all that Sarah hath said unto thee, hearken unto her voice. For in who? Isaac shall thy seed be called. I want you to notice that the word of the Lord is coming to Abraham. The word of the Lord comes to Abraham. Abraham, in your old age. Abraham, in Sarah's own age. God says, I'm going to make a great nation. How? I'm going to do it through your seed that's going to be so spread out, it's going to be equivalent to the dust of the earth. And it's going to come through thy seed, Isaac. God is very specific. God makes it clear. This is what I'm going to do. So, obviously, Abraham and Sarah had a glitch in this promise, didn't they? There was a challenge where they did not fully believe. This is why it is so important that husbands and wives make sure that you are both growing in faith. Because the wife can negatively impact the husband. And the husband can negatively impact the wife. And that's why, wives, you must understand you have an individual spiritual responsibility to keep your walk with God strong. Husbands, you have a spiritual responsibility to keep your walk with God strong because you affect your spouse. Sarah did not trust what God said. Sarah clearly did not have faith. How do we know that? Because Sarah said, we're going to go ahead and get my servant. They believed the promise, but they did like a lot of us do. They had a mingling of trust in men and trust in God. They believed God's promise, but they didn't trust God's timing. So while they believed God's promise, they kept watching time go by and they're getting not younger, but older. So hence Sarah says, let's get my servant involved and Abraham, go ahead and be intimate with her. And Abraham allowed his wife's doubting to affect him. And he went into agreement into an act of rebellion. Do you know that the Muslim world, as we know it, would not even exist if Sarah was faithful? That's so deep. I mean, that's just like really deep. Ishmael is the father of Islam. It is through Ishmael that we have Islam, the same way we have the Jews through Isaac. It's just deep when you look at it like that, these two brothers. And as the Bible says, Ishmael's hand shall be against every man and every man's hand against Ishmael. I mean, aren't we seeing that today? My brothers and sisters in Islam, I mean, it's, it's still a war going on. Always a war. All because of a lack of faith. And so it is that as we're looking at this, so we know that they fell off. So obviously Abraham now, he's pleading with God. He wants a blessing for his son, Ishmael. 
But that's when God had to say, Sarah, thy wife. Now, did you notice that God did not even acknowledge the other woman? Not that he hated her. But God made it clear, Sarah's your wife. Sarah, thy wife, shall bear thee a son. And his name is going to be Isaac. And it is in Isaac that your seed shall multiply and be blessed. God makes this clear. So Abraham gets back on track. Sarah gets back on track. And they eventually trust God. And Isaac is now born. But then the same word of God that came to Abraham, now Genesis 22. In Genesis 22 now, verses 1 and 2, we see something very interesting. In Genesis 22, right there in verses 1 and 2, the Bible says, And it came to pass after these things that God did tempt Abraham and said unto him, Abraham, and he said, Behold, here I am. And he said, Take now thy son, thine only son Isaac, whom thou lovest, and get thee into the land of Moriah, and offer him therefore a burnt offering upon one of the mountains, which I will tell thee of. The word of God said to him, you will have a son, he's going to make a great nation, and it's going to have seed that's going to be like the dust of the earth. This is what's going to happen through Isaac. But now God comes to him and he says, now I want you to kill your son. The very son I promised you that I was going to do what I said I was going to do. Literally, the same word that came to Abraham about his son is the same word that has come to him now telling him to kill his son. This is the next level of faith that must be cultivated. When it appears that the word of God is contradicting the word of God. This is not easy. I would dare to say there are very few of us that know how to live like this. When sometimes you have to hope against hope. I can only imagine how this affected Abraham because it would be one thing if God says, in thy son Isaac, your seed shall be blessed and multiplied as the dust of the earth. And then a doctor comes along and says, Isaac has a terminal disease and he's going to die. That would be totally different because that's man's word against God's word. But when it's God's word against God's word, that's a tight situation. That's not very easy. And so my mind can only imagine what Abraham was going through as he faced this new dilemma. So when I look at this, I thought to myself, well, this is pretty powerful because Abraham demonstrated his faith in Genesis 22. You can see it in verse 5. Even though, you see, sometimes these verses don't allow for humanity. It doesn't allow a, an aspect of reality because it just moves from one verse to the next. But when God said what he said to Abraham in verse 2, there was a whole lot of wrestling going on in Abraham's mind until we reach verse 5. In verse 5, what does it say? We can see the message of faith right there. Do you see it? You see it? Look at what it says. It says, And Abraham said unto his young men, Abide ye here with the ass, and I and the lad will go yonder and worship and come again to you. Do you see the, the statement of faith in there? What did Abraham say? He said, I and 
the lad will come again. Now, what was Abraham getting ready to do? He was getting ready to go up and sacrifice his son. But yet he's telling these guys, I'm going to come back with my son. So Abraham already made a statement of faith right there that he's going to trust God's word even against God's word. He couldn't explain it. He couldn't fully philosophize his way out of it. But what Abraham knew is that God's word stands. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God, it stands forever. God made a promise. And though I can't figure it out, what he's doing right now, I know that God is going to fulfill his word. Then Abraham did have a little glimpse. You see, go to Hebrews 11. When you go to Hebrews 11, Abraham did have a point of rationale that helped him believe that his son Isaac would come back with him from the mount, even though he would sacrifice him. And so it is that the Bible says in the book of Hebrews, the 11th chapter, notice what the Bible says, Hebrews, we're looking at the 11th chapter. And in Hebrews, the 11th chapter, verses 17 to 19, we get a little bit more of the story. In Hebrews 11, 17 through 19, notice what the Bible says. It says, by faith, Abraham, when he was tried, offered up Isaac. And he that had received the promises offered up his only begotten son. So notice, Abraham received the what? The promises. Then it says in verse 18, of whom it was said that in Isaac shall thy seed be called. So that was the promise. Abraham knew, I got to offer up my son Isaac, but I know God made a promise that in Isaac shall my seed be called. So how did Abraham mesh these two words of God that were coming to him? It's very clear. Verse 19, it says, accounting that God was able to do what? Raise him up, even from the dead, from whence also he received him in a figure. Sarah's womb was dead. Sarah's womb was barren. Sarah's womb could not have children. And God was able to pull life out of Sarah's dead womb. So Abraham had at least that evidence that if God can make my wife's dead womb suddenly come to life, that it could bear a child, that same God can take my son after I kill him and bring him back to life because I received him like that. Abraham had colossal faith. He trusted the word of God even against the word of God. That's why literally when you read Romans 4, it actually says it. It says that he exercised hope against hope. Read the account of it. It's a beautiful account. Go to Romans 4. When you look at Romans 4, you actually see the account. It is faith like this and this alone that will help bring us through this final crisis that we're getting ready to come into. In Romans, the fourth chapter, the Bible says in Romans 4, And let's go ahead and let's look at verse uh, 17. We'll pick up kind of in the middle of the story here. And in verse 17, talking about Abraham, you know, the previous verses, it says, as it is written, I have made thee a father of many nations before him whom he believed, even God, who quickeneth the dead and calleth those things which be not as though they were. Then it says, talking about Abraham, who against hope believed in hope. 
You see that? Against hope, he believed in hope. That he might become the father of many nations, according to that which was spoken. Remember, exercising faith, fully trusting what God's word said. It says, so shall thy seed be. And being not weak in faith, Abraham was not weak in faith at this point. And being not weak in faith, he considered not his own body now dead when he was about 100 years old, neither yet the deadness of Sarah's womb. He staggered not. This is the kind of faith that God needs us to have. It's the only kind of faith that can make it through these last days. And so it is again. He had not weak faith. His faith staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strong in faith, giving glory to God. Now, these are things that you need to highlight. You need to underline those things. Abraham was not weak in faith. Abraham's faith staggered not. Abraham was strong in faith. And Abraham was giving glory to God, even in the midst of him not fully understanding what was going on. This is a type of what God's people should be experiencing as we are getting ready to go through the final crisis. A faith that endures. Even when we don't fully understand what God is doing. And so Abraham, his faith staggered not. He was strong in faith, giving glory to God. And then it says in verse 21, being fully persuaded that what he had promised he was able also to perform. Those are points that you need to pull out when you study your Bible. Abraham, the Bible is very clear, according to what we just read in Romans, he was not weak in faith. He staggered not. He was strong in faith and giving glory to God. And he was fully persuaded that what God said he was going to do, he's going to do it. And he depended wholly on what God said he was going to do, that he's going to do it. This is where Abraham was. And what did God do? God performed a miracle. Now, the reason why this is so important is because the next lesson we must learn is we must learn to trust the word of God and follow that word even when it doesn't make sense to us. We must be fully persuaded that God cannot lie. And what he said shall come to pass because Isaiah 55, 11 says, so shall my word be that goeth forth out of my mouth. It will not return unto me void. It shall accomplish that which I please and it shall prosper in the thing whereto I sent it. God makes it clear. If I said it, it's going to come to pass. This is the kind of faith that you and I need to practice that I don't fully understand what God is doing right now. But I know that God has made promises. And I am fully persuaded that whatever God has promised, it is going to come to pass, even though I don't fully understand what's going on now. And it appears like the word is now going against the word. This is a kind of faith that not a whole lot of us have, but this is the kind of faith that God wants us to develop. This is the kind of cultivation that he wants us to have, meaning that when things take place in our life, in our walk with God, and we don't really know 
the fullness of what's going on. And we know that God has made promises in his word, and it seems like there are events happening right now that contradict the promises of God. It is at those moments that we need to trust what God has said. You see, God has made it clear. Somebody may say, Brother Lemon, why is it that you are not breaking away from the conference churches? I've had a division that has shut me down. And I called them. I said, why is it that you're telling people you won't let me come to certain places and what have you? And I tried to reason with them. And they were not willing to be reasonable. So it's like, okay. Somebody says, see, man, that's enough proof. Why are you still in the conference wasting your time? Had churches, had pastors, do all sorts of stuff. Backbite. I've spoken at conferences where a guy will shake your hand in your face and say, praise the Lord for the message, and then go right behind your back and go to other brethren and say, listen, don't ever bring that boy back here ever again. When he went to tell the guys, don't ever bring that guy back here again, he didn't understand that the guys that he was talking to were supporters of our ministry. So they came to me, hey, Dwayne, man, there's people here that are not liking your messages, etc. Somebody says, man, see, for that reason, you should be leaving the conference. You know why I don't leave the conference? Because God's word made it clear that this is his last church. There is no other church to go to. There is no other church to start. The very church that kicked Jesus out is the very church that Jesus came back and knocked on their heart's door and says, let me back in. You see, if I get kicked out of the church, there are a group of people that would say, amen, go start another church. But my brothers and sisters, we kicked Jesus out. But Jesus turned around and he's knocking back on the church's door and saying, let me back in. I want to be where Jesus wants to go. You understand that? So the word of God, no matter how much I see the realities that creeping compromise and sweeping apostasy and abomination upon abomination is taking place in the land. Why do I stay? Because the word of God says the church enfeebled, defective, in need of reproof and warning is the only object upon earth upon which God holds his supreme regard. This messed up church. The church will appear as if it is about to fall. But it shall not fall. Because the sinners in Zion, the sinners in the church, are going to be shaken out. There are people today trying to twist that. They're trying to say, no, 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 the, the, you know, those who are in the truth. That's not what the quote says. The quote says the sinners in Zion. That's a church. The sinners in Zion are going to be shaken out. So even though when we get to a place where the church begins to look so bad that we say it's getting hopeless, I will hope against hope. And I will go ahead and say, though God has made it known that the church is going to be messed up, it's going to go through these problems and what have you, God has promised us that when the shaking is done, he will have a clean church. He will have a purified church. And that is what keeps me here. That's what keeps me from moving. That's what makes me go ahead and take the abuse and say, you know what? I will rejoice for suffering for Christ's sake. I have listened to ministers who say things that are irresponsible, and sometimes they are worthy to be blocked from churches. 
because they're irresponsible. Even though they know a lot of present truth, they say stuff that is unnecessary and irresponsible. And a lot of times they make thrusts, even after the papacy. We got to be careful. While at one point we are to identify the man of sin and make a lot of things plain, but at the same time, don't say unnecessary stuff. Don't start calling names. Don't put a picture of the Pope up and say, look at that fool or look at that idiot and, and use these type of words. Those are thrusts. We have exact counsel in the books, counsels to writers and editors where the prophet of God says that we are not to make thrusts even at those outside of our faith. We don't have to be insulting. We got to call sin by its right name. We have to identify the man of sin. We have to be able to call out the papacy and the pope. That's not an issue to say this is what they're doing and so on, etc. and line it up. We're instructed to do that from inspiration. But we should never be insulting. There are movements right now that are so angry at the LGBT movement and all that's happening inside of the churches. Now we're seeing more gay elders, gay pastors and all these things and rainbows in front of everybody's churches. And it's like a lot of compromise is happening amongst the people of God. It's enough to make you weep between the porch and the altar. But at the same time, my brothers and sisters, we must never get to a place that we start calling people names. And being insulting and ungodly. Those who are part of the LGBT movement, we need to love them enough to say God cannot endorse this lifestyle. God will never endorse this lifestyle. This lifestyle is a sinful lifestyle. It is an abomination in the eyes of God. We ought to be able to say that and give plain thus saith the Lord. But when we start calling them these certain names and terms that I dare not even repeat before all of you. God says you've crossed the line. We're becoming insulting. And so at no point should we lose our tact. We should always be tactful because Jesus was always tactful. And so God wants us to understand that, yes, we're going to see a lot. Yes, persecution is going to happen. Yes, creeping compromises all over the place. But my brothers and sisters, God says, I got a plan to fix all of this. What God needs is he needs people to cooperate with his plan. Continue to give the straight testimony, continue to lift up the truth, continue to be faithful and continue to go ahead and let the brethren and let the church members and let leadership and laity know that God is still on the throne. This is still our father's world. This is still his church and he's still the head of it. And therefore, thus saith the Lord. This cannot be tolerated much further. I will not sit and I will not participate this. But more than that. If we cannot come to a point of agreement, if we cannot see eye to eye, then I will have to, with pen and with voice, protest the foul teachings that you are doing. And I will do it amongst the saints and make them aware. That's what I love about M.L. Andreasen. M.L. Andreasen, when he took a stand for God, he took a stand for God during the days when the book Questions on Doctrines was coming together and he saw the teachings in there and he saw the problems that was coming from those teachings. And he appealed to brethren. He met, he prayed, he cried with these brothers. But some people were belligerent. They didn't care. They were still going forward anyhow. And so one day after he looked at it and said, well, Matthew 18 makes it clear. Went to you one on one. I went to you with witnesses. You still didn't want to listen. So the next step is bring it before the churches, not the world, but the churches. And what he did was he wrote a little book called Letters to the Churches. That's how we got that book in our libraries today. 
And you'll notice in the book, Letters to the Churches, he talks about the spirit of prophecy, the nature of Christ. He goes through all of those argumentative subjects that creeping compromise started to come in our ranks. And he started to go ahead and admonish the brethren. And that work bore much fruit. Much fruit. Did it stop the book from questions on doctrines existing? No. But are there a lot of people today that have benefited from the teachings of Elder Andreasen and are standing firm and faithful and true to God? Yes. That book brought much fruit. God wants us to understand that he has given his word. And as a result of giving his word, we can trust it. Even though everything looks dark around us. Sometimes we're going to have to exercise hope against hope. There are going to be times that things are not going to make sense. And we're going to have to say, Father, I know that you said this is your church. We are your people. This is your message. And you told us that you can't do anything against the truth, only for the truth. And so no matter how many apostates rise up and try to tear down God's truth, I know, according to God's word, that God will continue to raise up standard bearers that are going to bring the light of his truth and his love back to the people. We don't have to worry is the church going to be taken over or is this going to happen or is that going to happen? We can trust what God said he's going to do. And so, my brothers and sisters, the first thing that I want to make us aware of in this final session. Is that while in our previous session, we must learn to trust the word of God fully and to believe that what God said shall come to pass and depend on the word of God, that what he said will, in fact, come to pass in this second point. It is to make clear to us, even when the word of God appears to be against the word of God. And we may not be able to dot the I and cross the T right now. We may not be able to make all the sense of it. But nevertheless, I will still trust him. And I will trust that what he said will come to pass, even if he has to do an absolutely unorthodox miracle to make it come to pass. So be it. But God will do this. And this message is especially true for gospel workers whom God has called us to do cold porter work. Today we're told that, oh man, they slammed all the doors on us. They're closing up communities and, and the cold porter work is dead. That, that's why a lot of our conferences don't have publishing departments anymore. A lot of people believe the publishing work and the cold porter work is dead. God has made it clear that work is never going to die. God made it clear that the publications will be part of the loud cry of Revelation 18. So that means that no matter how many doors we see closed, that just means that God says, maybe I'm calling you to raise up a publishing house starting in your backyard. Go ahead and buy a printer. Go ahead and start making pamphlets. And as you get more money, then you go ahead and get a Xerox machine and start making little booklets. And as you get more money, then go ahead and get multiple duplicating machines. So now you can go ahead and make books. That's what James White did. That was the day James White surrendered his axe and took up his pen. He never went back to the axe. When James White and Ellen White would run out of money, James White would pick up an axe and go chop wood just so he could make enough money to keep the work going. And after a while, God said, retire that axe once and for all. James, I'm calling you to the publishing work. And James White went into the publishing work and he never had to pick up that axe anymore. Now he began to write. And the brethren began to write. And they started very small, papers, papers, and then pamphlets, and then booklets. Then books. 
Start with the little bit that you have. But do not say God cannot do it. Outpost centers, same thing. We still need outpost centers, no question. And as God has our hearts, we can go ahead and know, thus saith the Lord. As God had schools of the prophets through Samuel, as God has schools of the prophets through Elijah, so it is that God raised up schools of the prophets to prepare people to stand true to him. Just because the leaders in the school of the prophets fell from the truth and no longer followed it does not mean that schools of the prophets are now irrelevant. God still wants to raise them up. And so what we need to do now is exercise enough faith, even though everything looks hopeless, and say God said that this is what he wants. He wanted blueprint schools, therefore we trust his word. He will supply what is needed to give us blueprint schools. Maybe what we need to do is stop ministering so much to Adventists and start ministering to the Gentile world. We are told in inspiration that the great portion of wealth is in the hands of those who do not believe our message. So we need to stop always ministering to each other, even though we're called to support each other. Praise the Lord. That's good. But the great portion of wealth, the kind of work that we're trying to get done, it is sitting in the pockets of those who are not part of our faith. And we need to have ministries that are able to meet the needs of them so that we can build relationships and they can become supporters to the cause of Christ. God has all of this thing laid out, but we have to start exercising a deeper level of faith. Now, there is something that we can learn to cultivate that will help us with this. And I'm going to give this little gem to you in closing. Earlier today, you heard me talk about praying and communing with God. I want to show you something that I just want to leave this with you as a little gem. That I pray that this will help you in the cultivation of faith. Go to the book of Mark chapter 1. In Mark chapter 1. I want you to watch this. Mark, we're looking at chapter 1. And I want you to watch this. In Mark 1 and verse 35, we're going to look at this text of Scripture. After Jesus was spending a great amount of time in the evening prior ministering to others, the Bible says in verse 35, and in the morning, Rising up a great while before day, he went out and departed into a solitary place and there prayed. I have learned there's no way to cultivate the kind of faith or trust in God that Jesus wants us to do without following his pattern of how he had communion with his father. I want you to think about this. This is what I want. I'm going to just let you in my business a little bit. This is what I want. Have you ever thought about this? If you carefully study the New Testament, I have never been so interested in health and healing and restoration and wholeness and all of that. I've never been so interested in that because when I woke up in cardiology, I was in CCU, critical care unit. And I remember when I was in there, uh, that thing was in my throat, that tube. And I remember I could hear Dr. Wong saying, okay, take it out. 
And that was the same day of the surgery. So I was just like, oh. You know, in my mind, I was like, good. And they was like, okay, Dwayne. And I was still kind of drugged up. So I was just like, you know, kind of in and out. And I remember there's like, one, two, three. And they was like, and, you know, they just pulled that thing out of my throat. What a, uh. So eventually the drugs wore off, and I was like, okay, what's going on? All right, what's happening? And it was like, okay, Dwayne, the surgery went well, this, this, and this. And I said, okay. And he says, tomorrow we're going to have you start walking. I mean, I'm fresh out of surgery. And it was like, we're going to have you walking tomorrow. So I'm like, mm, okay. And as uh, the following day came, they was like, all right, it's time to walk. And I got these tubes coming out of me. And boy, am I drained. I mean, I just, I have no energy. So, you know, just to walk from like here to there was like a journey, you know? So I remember they said, we're going to do a round around the unit. I said, okay. So we started doing a round. So every time I did a round, I would walk, and then I would look into a room, and I would see people laid out in their beds. I remember this motorcyclist-looking guy. He looked like a Harley Davidson guy, you know, big long beard and jeans and boots and stuff. And he was just there just rubbing his wife's hair as she just laid there in that bed unconscious. And I would go past the room, and I'd see them, and then I'd see another guy. This guy, he looked like he was from the Pacific Islands, like Tonga, Samoa, something like that. And he's just there, and he was young. And that brother was just laid out, head turned to the side, a lot of hair. And I'll just watch him, and I was just like, wow. And I would just walk through, and I would ask him, like, did all these people go through the same surgery I did? They said, yep. I said, man. And day two would come, or really day three. And they'd say, all right, Mr. Lemon, got to walk again. I'll say, all right, let's do it. And I'll walk in, I'll get stronger. And I would go past the room. That woman is in the same position with her husband, still rubbing her hair. Go past the other room. That brother's laying there, and his... He's just still out. Day four, same thing. I mean, just looking at that. And God put a passion in my heart for the sick that I never had before. He put a passion in my heart for the sick. I said, Lord, something has to happen for this. And so I have really been studying over these past nine months the health and healing work from the Bible and the spirit of prophecy. And there's something I discovered. Are you aware that it's only approximately two times in the New Testament that before a miracle was done on behalf of someone else to be healed or even resurrected, that they prayed? Only two times. In other words, all the healing work that's done in the New Testament, there's only two times that there was a prayer before the work was done. Peter with Tabitha Jesus with Lazarus. Every other time, Jesus would just say, get up. And then folks would get up. Jesus prayed before Lazarus. Peter prayed before Tabitha. But then after that, it's just a whole bunch of healing. Where Paul is preaching, and a brother's just getting tired, even though the sermon's good. Falls down and dies. Paul gets down, he goes downstairs, he says, young man, get back up. And he just wakes that brother up and then brings him back up and finishes preaching the message. And so that was the first thing I noticed. I said, man, there was more commanding than there was just praying before 
the deliverance. Then, deeper than that, Peter is in a room with Tabitha, and there's a whole lot of people in the room. Peter says to everybody, get out the room. All of you leave. They all leave the room. Then Peter goes to Tabitha after praying, and he says, Tabitha, get up. And I thought to myself, Peter never said, if it be God's will, let Tabitha rise up. This guy's at the gate beautiful, and he's at the gate beautiful. He's been sick for a long time. He sees Peter and John, alms for the poor. Peter and John go to this brother, and then as Peter and John go to this brother, they say, listen, silver and gold have I not, but such have I give I unto thee. In the name of Jesus, rise and walk. He gets up and he starts walking. Jesus sees a man whose son is possessed with a demon. Jesus says, I say unto you, deaf, dumb, and foul spirit, come out of this boy, come out of him, and leave him alone. Don't go back into him. And the demon just takes off. It seems like somehow God communicated to the mind of Peter, to the mind of John, to the mind of Jesus, to the mind of James or Paul. It's like God communicated with them. I am in agreement for what you want to be done to take place. Their connection with God was so tight that they didn't even have to say, if it be your will. They already knew it was God's will to raise them up. I have not seen that with us in the way we do gospel medical missionary evangelism. I just haven't seen it. There is a deep timidity that a lot of us have. There's generally no idea what God is going to do. And I'm not here to knock the idea of if it be your will. We have a chapter in ministry healing on prayer for the sick. We're specifically told that we don't know what God always wants on behalf of people because we don't know these people's lifestyle. So therefore, we need to say if it be your will. I am not negating that. What I'm saying is, is that we have totally neglected that we can know God's will when it comes to certain sick people. We have made that the general standard for every sick person. How many of you were able to go to somebody and you knew as a result of God communicating to your heart because you and God are so close that God told you to tell them, this sickness is not unto death, you shall rise. You see, some of us say that but we have a back door open that just in case the person don't rise, we could just say, oh, well, I guess it wasn't God's will. That was not Peter's faith. Peter knew God told me. Peter did not have any timidity when he went to Tabitha and said, Tabitha, get up. Peter knew God has told me that Tabitha is going to rise. Tabitha, get up. Peter and John knew that God was in agreement when they said, I don't have any money, but what I do have, they knew what they had. I don't think we know what we have. They said, what I do have, I'm going to give you right now. In the name of Jesus, get up. And that brother got up. How did they know that vital force and healing energy was going to flow through that brother and that he was going to get up? Do you understand what I'm saying to you? I literally was like, Father, are you telling me that we can have such a close communion with you 
that while there are going to be some cases that you will withdraw knowledge from us, and therefore we're just going to say, Lord, if it be your will, you know, do such and such. But wait a minute. What we're going to see a lot more of is that you're actually going to tell us, I stand in agreement with, with this. Go tell them. You can actually tell me something? And this is all under early reign. You see, a lot of us think early reign power is here today only for preaching. But why isn't the early reign power here today to also do some healing work? I'm not saying that it neglects natural remedies. I'm not saying that. Yes, we can still use natural remedies. I'm just saying we have so much confidence that the early reign power is present today to preach the word. But the Bible shows that there was a lot more that happened under the early reign than just the preaching of the word. So why is it that the more cannot happen? Why is it that the more we put after latter rain? What Bible verse you got for that? In other words, what I'm really trying to say in a nutshell, I think there's more power available to us than what we know. That's the real bottom line of everything that I just said over the past 10 minutes. I think there's a whole lot more power that is available to everyone who truly seeks it. So, Jesus gets up. Jesus gets up a great while before day. He leaves this awesome, excellent example that a great while before day, he finds a solitary place, and he there has communion with God. I read Ministry of Healing, page 51. In Ministry of Healing, page 51, it says, The Savior's life on earth was a life of communion with nature and with God. Listen to this. The Savior's life on earth was a life of communion with nature and with God. In this communion, he revealed for us the secret of a life of power. In this communion with nature and with God, he revealed for us, the secret of a life of power. Ministry Healing, page 51, paragraph 1. I believe with all of my heart, the secret to you and I having more power to demonstrate God more faithfully under early rain, as we prepare for latter rain, is in how we have communion with God. It's not about how many Bible studies you attend. It's not about how many training schools you've gone through. It's not about how many present truth churches you're a part of. It's not about how many present truth speakers have come to your church. I believe the secret to a life of power is going to come to you and I when we commune with God like Jesus did. Like Jesus did. So, it got me thinking. What are some gems that we can get from the life of Christ and his communion? And I'm just going to give you one. There's a lot more that I could share. But for tonight, I'm going to give you just one. Go to Luke, the 11th chapter. We looked at that earlier. Luke, the 11th chapter. 
And I want to see if you see what I see. Luke, the 11th chapter. And when you get there, just let me know by saying amen. The Bible says in Luke, the 11th chapter, starting in verse 1, and it came to pass that as he was praying in a certain place, when he ceased, one of his disciples said unto him, Lord, teach us to pray as John also taught his disciples. Jesus's communion was so powerful that it was actually attractive and it attracted the minds of the disciples enough that they said, Lord, teach me how to do what you do. Teach me how to have communion with God. It wasn't just merely prayer, but it was it was his entire communion. Teach us how to do this. Just in verse two, tell me if you see what I see. This is a very powerful lesson. It says. And he said unto them, when you pray, say our father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done as in heaven, so in earth. Stop right here. The disciples see Jesus having his communion. They are so impressed by it that they say, Lord, teach us how to do it. Jesus agrees to teach them how to do it as he's teaching you and I how to do it. And he shows us something very powerful. What did Jesus teach them in verse two? That was a method of how he has communion with God. I just want to know, did you see it? Because I must confess that I've read this verse so many times. And I admit, I didn't see it. What do you see? Do you see anything there? And if you see nothing, that's fine. Okay, you see nothing. But I see something. He's literally teaching them how to pray. He's teaching us how to pray. What did Jesus show? What do you got? Our Father, say our Father. Okay, so acknowledging God as our Father. That's true. Something even more deep, yet more simple. Say again. It's not about me, but about you. That's another important principle. That's true. It's something even more deep and more practical. Yes. Yep. Same power in heaven is the same thing God wants to give us on earth. That's true. But there's something even more practical in the verse. I like what I can practice. Okay? So Jesus gave a practical lesson. And I understand the answers because I, I would have given all the same answers. But there's something very practical in the verse we didn't catch yet. Anyone else? Let's take two more. What's the lesson Jesus is teaching us in the verse? God's will to be done. This is true. True. There's something even more practical. One more. You're going to be like, wow. I mean, you're just going to say, look at that. It's right in your face. You know, Ellen White uses these two words often when it comes to reading. She'll say, read it prayerfully and carefully. You got to learn how to read the Bible like that. One more. 
that his name be holy. Okay, very true. Something more practical. Are you ready? Yes, sister. Brother Jude, say it one more time, please. Say. Look at what the verse says. He said unto them, when you pray, what's the next word? Say. Now, he could have said, when you pray, think. Is that what he said? No. But isn't that what we do? When we pray, we think. We are completely silent, and we're usually in a posture, and we do a lot of thinking. Is that right? But that's not following the instruction. Jesus did not say, when you pray, think, our Father which art in heaven. He said, when you pray, say, which means open your mouth. Jesus actually wants you to be audible when you pray. When you go out in nature and you seek to have communion with God and you are in a solitary place, you're by yourself, that is not the time for thinking prayers. That is the time to open your mouth and talk to God. Now watch this. I'm in the book Steps to Christ, the book we love to give out, but we don't spend enough time reading. This is what it says. Through nature and revelation, through his providence and by the influence of his spirit, God speaks to us. But these are not enough. We need also to pour out our hearts to him. Listen to this, please, family. This is, I told you, when you go through a conversion experience, familiar passages of scripture will burst out in your face with brand new meaning. Through nature and revelation, listen carefully to this, through nature and revelation, through his providence and by the influence of his spirit, God speaks to us. But these are not enough. We need also to pour out our hearts to him. Okay, that's fine. All right, Lord, so it's not enough that you're speaking through me, through providence, nature, through your spirit, etc., you're telling me that you also want me to pour out my heart to you. So sometimes we go into our kneeling position or whatever position, and sometimes we close our eyes, and sometimes we are thinking so much and pouring out our heart to God. But listen to what it says. It says, in order to have spiritual life and energy, we must have actual intercourse with our Heavenly Father. In order to have spiritual life and energy, we must have actual intercourse with our Heavenly Father. Now, this next sentence was like, are you serious, Lord? It's, look at what it says. It says, our minds may be drawn out toward him. We may meditate upon his works, his mercies, his blessings, but this is not in the fullest sense communing with him. Listen to this, family, please. Our minds may be drawn outward toward him. Our minds. 
we may meditate upon his works, his mercy, his blessings, but this is not in the fullest sense communing with him. Closing sentence. In order to commune with God, we must have something to say to him concerning our actual life. God says, I want you to talk to me. You see, when you walk through nature, and this this is why nature is so important with God. I don't know what some of y'all are waiting for. I mean, if you really are bound and messed up financially and you just can't get out, I understand. But if you got money and you got it and you're just trying to wait for all these perfect times, you're past your perfect times. God has said over 100 years ago, get out of the cities as fast as possible, get into nature. And family, especially for the sake of our children, if not for ourselves, when you go out in nature in a solitary place and when you're walking, you're surrounded by trees and so on, and you are there and you actually open your mouth and talk to God, he becomes almost a hundred times more real to you than when you just think to God. You just start talking to him. You pour out your heart to him verbally and you start speaking to him. God does wonders. Our minds become more convinced I am speaking to a real being. Where sometimes when we think so much, we don't know, was that my thoughts? Was that the devil's thoughts? Was that God's thoughts just now? I don't know whose thoughts that was. Sometimes you can get real confused in just the thinking prayer. And there's a time and place to think. If you're at your job and, you know, you're surrounded by a bunch of people, that's a moment where you can say, Father, you know, you're thinking in your head. But when you are having communion with God, Jesus says, I want you to go find a solitary place. I want you to go out in nature and I want you to open your mouth and I want you to say to me what's on your heart. Because Christ knows we become more convinced that he is real. We become more convinced that he is present. And that's the gem I leave with you tonight. Because that's a gem I think you can practice. I challenge any, I don't care what your walk is with God right now. If it's weak or if it's great, it's going to get stronger or it's going to get greater if you start doing this. This is how Jesus had communion with the Father. When Jesus broke away from the crowd, he found a quiet place and he opened his mouth and talked to his Father. I would like to encourage you, open your mouth. Speak to God. Talk to him. And then when you're finished talking, Be quiet and start listening for him to speak back to you. How? God speaks through nature. That's one of his voices. You read that in Romans chapter 10, right there from verses 18 and 19. It makes it very clear. After it says faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God, it says, have they not heard? That's verse 18. Yes, their sound went into all the earth. And their voice unto the end of the world. 
That is directly from Psalms 19. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth forth his handiwork. Day unto day it uttereth speech, night unto night it showeth knowledge. And it literally says, there is no area where we can go that their sound has not gone throughout all the earth and their voice unto the end of the world. Nature can speak to us. When you look at that evergreen, God is teaching us principles about how he wants us to be. So nature can speak to us. Then God speaks to us through providential leadings. God speaks to us through his Holy Spirit. God speaks to us through his word. Volume 5 of the Testimonies to the Church, page 512. Three ways that God speaks to us. Through the word. Through his providential leadings. Through the appeals of his Holy Spirit to our heart. When you talk to God, learn how to listen to him speak back to you. And he will speak through nature. He will speak through his word. He will speak through his providential leadings. He will speak through the appeals of his spirit to your heart and to mine. That's why the first sentence we just read, through nature and revelation. Through nature and revelation. And through the influence of his spirit, God speaks to us. My brothers and sisters, this is when communion will be taken to the next level with God. In closing... I was privileged to drop my children off a few weeks ago to Kentucky. They were all getting ready to spend three weeks going into the field doing the canvassing work. And as they were getting ready to go through the field and do their canvassing work, I remember that they asked me, can you do the morning devotion for us? So we talked about this. And the place that they were staying was right there in nature. It was gorgeous, beautiful, just surrounded by the mountains, trees, everything. It was just wonderful. And I challenged all of them. I said, the kind of power that God wants to give to us can only come through true, solid communion with God. It seems like there's some of us. I know this doesn't apply to all of us. But there's some of us, we give God a hard time. We don't listen to him. God has told us from a long time ago, Take you and your families and get out of the city. Get into the country. He says, get out there in the scenes of nature. Learn the lessons of faith that I'm trying to teach you. It's not always about just avoiding, you know, sin and all these other things. But it's about having communion with him. And God tells us to do that because he knows what he's talking about. And some of us, we have the financial wherewithal to get that done. But for some reason, we just keep in an empty way, waiting for something, waiting for more manifestations. I'm like, God spoke, and he spoke clearly. And some of us who are waiting and that are financially enabled to do it, we got children. And it's 10 times harder in the cities with our children. It's not impossible, but it's 10 times harder. Do you understand what we're getting ready to embrace? If we understood that we are gearing up for Dark Ages Part 2, if I can put it in that language. When you read books like Fox's Book of Martyrs or you go through the historical chapters of Great Controversy and you, you read just what was going on, the papacy is sitting back and just waiting for its opportunity. The papacy has not changed. We know that. It's Protestantism that has changed. 
It's this very month, 500th year anniversary of the Protestant faith and the Reformation and so on. But this is also a month by which the Lutheran Church in a most marked manner says we're coming back to Rome. God is like letting us know. He's showing us so clear the papacy is gearing up and being more and more empowered that it's going to begin working its philosophies through the second beast, the United States of America. And we are going to see a dark ages happen all over again. And so one of a few things can happen with, with our youth. Either we're going to have youth like Great Controversy 366. If you don't know what I'm talking about, read it. Either we're going to have youth like that that are being so faithfully trained that they know how to stand true to God. They will be faithful even at the potential peril of their own lives. They are so selfless. Or God in mercy will allow some of our precious young children to sleep. Because God says, I'd prefer to lose them for a time and have them for an eternity. And so these children whose faces we love to look at every day, every morning, every afternoon, and so on. God may say, I may have to let that child rest. If this crisis is really real and as close as we think, and if we are not going to truly do everything that God says, God in mercy may say, I'm going to let some children sleep. So that way, I can make sure that I have them for eternity. Oh, our pain will be terrible. But God will sustain us. And it will make us that much more desirous to see his work finished so we can all be back together again. Or the worst option, as a result of not properly training our children, they're lost. And that's something that I just don't want to talk about that. But parents, you got to understand, we, we have the most solemn responsibility. You got to give your children every advantage. And if you have the means and all these things, you need to get up and you need to get out. And you need to take your children to a place that God will guide you and let you know that here's a place that I want you to settle down out of the city, into the country, and that you can have that communion with God that will teach us how to develop a faith that will endure. Jesus taught us. Now what we got to do is remember a promise. Oh, Brother Lemon, I can't get out of the city. I can't get into the country. I don't have any money. My job, my this, my that. God's promise is, I will supply all of your needs according to my riches and glory through Christ Jesus. What are you talking about? Go. Find the place. Go. Get your real communion with me. My job keeps me so busy, I don't have time to have communion like that. Then you're going to be lost, family. And you've got to ask yourself, is my job worth all of that? I hope none of you would be deceived in thinking so. Our jobs are not worth it. What is stopping you? What is stopping me from having the type of communion with God that Jesus has taught us as his disciples to have? So my hope and my prayer is that when we leave this place, 
that as families and as husbands and wives, that you really start thinking about it, talking about it, praying about it, trusting God's word. Lord, you know my circumstance, but you promised that you would supply all of my riches and glory. I rest my case on your word. It's time for you to fulfill it. We have this promise, and I leave you with this in closing. Desire of Ages 668. I want you to listen to this. Desire of Ages 668, last promise that I'll give to you tonight. It says, please, just listen. When we decide to do, I'm quoting, when we decide to do nothing in any line that will displease God and present our case before him, he will show us just what course to pursue. Let me repeat that. When we decide to do nothing in any line that will displease God and present our case before him, he will show us just what course to pursue. One of the reasons why some of us don't know where to go or what to do is because we have not decided in any line and in any case that we will not displease you. There are still some areas of our lives where we are still making the decisions over our lives and we testify that you are not the God of my life. Until you let that go, until you stop making the plans for you and your family and let God make the plans for you and your family, you will stay confused. And God does not want you to be confused because the Bible I read and you read says in 1 Corinthians 14, 33, God is not the author of confusion. If we're confused, it's not God's fault. It's not his fault. There's something missing on our side. And that's why don't just guard jealously your hours for prayer and the searching of the scriptures, but it also says the examination of your heart. That's why we have search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there be any wicked way in me. Lord, where am I frustrating what you have told me to do? Where am I not doing what you've told me to do? And God will show you. He'll show you. And then he's going to call you to make a decision. And when you decide to do nothing in any line that will displease him, in any line that will displease him, in any line that will displease him, and then you present your case before him, God says, I promise you, I'm going to show you exactly what to do now. He's waiting on you, family. There's more miracles, more power that is available to all of us. We are slowing the process down. And so my hope and my prayer is that we will understand we need to develop that centurion, Abraham-like faith. That firm, complete, absolute, implicit trust in God, which is the faith of Jesus. We must cultivate this faith in the various circumstances of our life when there's going to be a time that we are called to trust, even when it doesn't make any sense. 
as we do this day by day, week by week, month by month, year by year, in time, God is going to form more and still more his thoughts, his feelings, his actions, his actions repeated. It's going to form his character in you and in me. And we're going to do everything that he says. Because one thing I've learned, my body goes right because my brain sent a message to tell my body go right. My body goes left because my brain sends a message through the nervous system to tell my body to go left. The day that my body goes right and my head goes left, you need to run out of this sanctuary. Because something's definitely wrong. But my brothers and sisters, Jesus is the head of the church, which is the body. And there's some serious stuff happening right now because the body is going right when the head wants to go left. The body is going left when the head wants to go right. Jesus wants to commune with us so strongly that we become so intertwined with each other that whenever the head goes right, the body goes right. Whenever the head goes left, the body goes left. John the Revelator says, they follow the lamb whithersoever he goes. That's the kind of people that's going to demonstrate. Finally, we have the faith of Jesus. What he wants is what we want. His thoughts are our thoughts. His feelings are our feelings. The actions he wants are the actions we do. The repetition is what we repeat. The character of God is now our own. Then we go home. Question. How many of you understood the study? Is it your desire to cooperate on a deeper level with Jesus that you can have a sweeter communion with him? Family, make a covenant. Let it stick. Let it stick. It'll stretch you hard, but it won't be so hard that you'll break. God will keep me. He'll keep me. I know what God is doing. He's encouraging me as I'm encouraging you. I'm receiving these words as I'm sharing these words. And so my hope and prayer is that we all will take our walk with Jesus a lot more seriously. Troublesome times are here, filling men's hearts with fear. And freedoms we all hold dear, now is at stake. Humble your hearts to God, save from the chastening rod. Fearful things as the pilgrims trod. Christians, awake. Jesus is coming soon. Let us be ready. Amen? Let's go to our knees and have a closing prayer. Father in heaven, Thank you so much, Lord, for the precious lessons that we were able to learn today. Thank you so much for the work of thy Holy Spirit. Thank you, Father, for the deeper experience that you've called us to throughout this weekend. Lord, we pray that you will bless my brothers and sisters well beyond their expectations. Draw their hearts ever closer and still closer to thee. 
I pray that you might help all of us to truly cultivate faith, to trust you, even when there's nothing around us that signifies us to do so except the words you have spoken. The prophet had the vision that in the very last moments of earth's history, the only thing God's people will have to hang on to is the cord. And that cord represents faith. And faith comes by the word. Teach us, Lord, how to hang upon your word and your word only. And to not give up. And Lord, I just pray, help us to build up our most holy faith. And to truly give you glory. Bless my brothers and sisters here at Mentone. And truly work in our hearts. That as we see all the scenes taking place around us, both in the world and in the church. That we will be a people prepared to meet our God. And thank you for hearing this prayer. And also for answering it, for we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.